Welcome to Beyond the Bedside, nested stories of nursing professionals. This is a podcast where we explore the intersection of health, equity, and research by telling stories and deconstructing studies to glean those nuggets of wisdom that we can use to improve our practice as healthcare providers. The views shared are those of the host and guests and are not endorsed by Stanford Healthcare or its affiliates. Discussions of health and healthcare are not intended to convey or replace advice by a healthcare professional. Once again, my name is Dr. Tiffany C. Brown, and I'm so excited to introduce our first guest to today's episode entitled, I Have a Dream. I am chatting with Mr. Carter Todd, who is a master degreed registered nurse with over seven years experience, having practiced bedside nursing, specializing in critical care, working in pediatrics ICU, and currently working as an assistant manager, nurse manager at a hospital. He is the founder of founder and president, excuse me, of the Capital City Black Nurses Association, also a member of the National Black Nurses Association, and a member of the American Nurses Association. He is the recipient of the Diversity and Inclusion Award issued by the Association of California Nurse Leaders in Sacramento, um, and that was in May 2023. Also, other awards such as 40 Under 40 and Emerging Nurse Leader. He considers himself a nurse leader with a passion to improve healthcare delivery through a health equity lens. He personally believes what fuels his journey is to live as a patient and community advocate, continually building relationships and activating the potential of others. So let's give it up for Mr. Carter Todd. Hi, Carter. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thank you for the intro. (laughs) You're welcome. So let's begin when we first met. Do you remember? I believe it was this time last year in Washington, D.C. Exactly. Uh-huh. We met at the 35th annual National Black Nurses Association Day on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. last year. When I met you, I recall being extremely impressed at, by your presence as you projected confidence, professionalism, and as well as charisma. So mm. I was excited when you agreed to do this interview, and I did some research. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you featured in numerous articles as well as on YouTube videos. I said, okay, excuse me, Mr. <laughs> Carter Todd. And this made me more excited to learn more about your lens and health equity and the path to get you there. So let's dive a little bit more, if you don't mind, into your journey. So tell our listeners, myself and our listeners, what experience in life inspired your path into the nursing profession? Mm. Good question. So for a lot of men, I believe our path into nursing uh, is different than the majority of nurses, which are women, right? So my path started with athletics in high school, um, all the ball sports, baseball, basketball, football. And that was my focus, right? I was going to be on TV playing something. And I had two aunts who were registered nurses who I just really look up to. They had a comfortable life. Their demeanor, they were positive, compassionate. And as a teenage boy, you don't necessarily identify those words or those traits as something that, you know, that's the the path that you want to follow. But I vividly remember looking up to those women and thinking, you know, I want to do what they do. And it's funny, when I was uh, getting ready for this interview, I was looking 
and reflecting back on, you know, when did I want to be a registered nurse? And there's a there's an old newspaper clipping from an interview I did after a football game. And they asked me what I want to be when I grow up. And I said paramedic. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think that was more stereotypical. And I didn't know any registered nurses who were men. Growing up in the Central Valley of uh, California, there just wasn't a lot of uh, role models or mentorships who were men. So I went to college, played sports for a little bit, done playing sports. I still wanted to be a registered nurse. And then once I made that decision at age 18, Mm -hmm. 19, and starting those prereqs, I never looked back. So I believe that's what helped me want to be a nurse and the the foundation of what it was. You know, same thing I recommend to all young people volunteering early on in my journey really cemented that yeah. getting into emergency department, seeing the nurses role at the bedside, um, being able to be with folks. I just, I remember I loved getting the, the, the blankets. I loved getting the cup of water, right? I love being there and talking with folks. I think that's just who I am as a person. Yeah. And the registered nurse, you get to intimately be involved with someone's healthcare and it's, it's amazing. I love it. I love it. I love hearing about people's path. You know, tell us a little bit about, you mentioned school, getting accepted. What school did you go to? I know you have two degrees. You got your bachelor's, your BSN, actually probably more than that. So you tell us, <laughs> what school you know, did you attend uh, for nursing and then your master's degree? Yeah, good question. And I have done all the schools and I'm a very, you know, 2024 now, I've done all the type of schools as well. So I moved out of state, went to big school at Texas Tech University and knocked out some prereqs. Came back to California, went to the junior college in Merced, California for three years and got my AA degree. My twin brother was a pitcher at Sac State, Sacramento's California State University, Sacramento. So I transferred to Sac State and got my first bachelor's degree in occupational health and safety. I was a first generation college student. My parents didn't go to school. My brother was there, but hadn't finished yet. So it was really important for me to get that first bachelor's degree. And in full transparency, Dr. Brown, I'm a B student and school for me always came easy. But the extra time it took, you know, I was working. I worked um, through college to put myself through school, Um, through nursing school. I was working 32 hours a week bartending at night. So I get off and close the bar at two or three. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sometimes I have to be back to clinical at six o'clock in the morning. Right. So um, getting that A and getting the extra time to study just was not something that I had the ability to do. So bachelor's degree at Sac State, which was amazing. And then I had the amazing good fortune. We all have our story of when we got yeah. into nursing school. I still remember mine very vividly, but rolling over and getting that acceptance letter from Samuel Merritt University and their accelerated bachelor's program here at the Sacramento campus mm-hmm. was one of those tra- transformational moments in my life. So I was able to do the accelerated bachelor's program through Samuel Merritt University here in Sacramento was able to stay where I was put in my housing, stay in my job and support myself through school. And then I got out into the work world, worked in the pediatric ICU straight out as a new grad, which for any new grad, that's a big task. Absolutely. There was four of us who started. One of us, one of them was done in the first two months. The other one was done at like nine months. And then the two of us were standing on the top of the hill because it was very grueling jumping into the critical care area. Awesome. But two years after working, then I went back to school and got a master's degree from Betty Irene Moore School of Nursing with a focus mm-hmm. on leadership that then opened my eyes to even more opportunities and as I've seen kind of my path and the way that people have supported me and grown me through nursing, um, then I went back and got my master's in business administration or MBA through uh, Western Governors. Wow. What a wonderful journey. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Mm-hmm. You know, like you kind of highlighted, I want to say a couple things. I feel like 
you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people, plenty of nurses, plenty of healthcare professionals, period, who can relate, you know, to your story of, you know, like working full time, you know, while you're still in school, you know, not, I don't want to discount being a B student, you, you know, you passed, accelerated and kept going, you know, that's the main thing, you know, um, so I'm sure there are many people that can, you know, uh, relate to that and can see that maybe it was an obstacle or a challenge, but what would you say specifically may have been some challenges or moments, you know, did you ever feel any moments where it might have been a little bit difficult to continue? Oh, yeah. No, you know, that's a good point. And you bring up the GPA is huge, right? In healthcare, um, in the sciences, you, you need to know what you're doing. It's very serious, the, the jobs that we're taking. However, people are, are more than just a GPA. And that's why I want to give another shout out to Samuel Merritt is they looked at me as a holistic applicant. I had had college athletics. I was working full time. I had volunteered. I had my EMT yeah. license, right? Mm -hmm. So they were able to look at me holistically and my GPA may not have got accepted other places, but they seen me there. And I, I like to think I did it okay there. The challenges that I ran into, Tiffany, were just not having a mentor early on, having to retake some of those core sciences, those prerequisites, because I just didn't know. I remember the first time I took anatomy, I didn't even know what a lab was. So I just wasn't going. I went once and they had all the bones set up and the teacher was kind of there, but was there as a resource. So it was kind of do it your own. So mm -hmm. an 18 year old uh, young man with no direction, I just didn't go because I was doing other things in college. And I quickly took that, uh, is there a W or an I on the transcript to get out of there? Cause I was, I, I failed out pretty quick, right? So having to jump through those hurdles, it just took me a little bit longer. Right. I think I was very fortunate. I still had the stick with and the grit that I knew I wanted to do it. Yes. But what I've seen is those hurdles kind of stop people at times. And sometimes yeah. it's one class and then that gets them off the journey to being a registered nurse. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of things, you know, thanks for sharing that, you know, being very transparent with us. First of all, I appreciate that. You know, this is going to help many people, you know, um, it's also, you know, your transparency will help, you know, other people with sure. regards to their journeys as well. Um, a couple, I just want to step back just a bit. You know, you mentioned a couple things, mentorship, you know, um, and you mentioned, you know, like as far as people who influenced you, as far as the nurses that were in your family, but mm -hmm. understanding that male nurses, you know, were kind of particularly like, and you might not have seen that, um, that example. So I want to dive in and bring into a little, a few statistics, if that's okay. Sure. According to the American Association of Colleges of Nursing Workforce Fact Sheet, nurses from minority backgrounds represent 19.4% of registered nurse nurses comprised of, and, it, and considering the racial backgrounds, particularly the RN population in 2022 comprised of 80% white Caucasian, 6.3% uh, African American, 7.4% Asian. 0.4% American Indian um, and 0.4% Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander and 6.9% um, Hispanic. Then, you know, the other uh, resources from the same site, actually, from 2020 to 2022, noted that the percentage of men in nursing increased from 9.4% to 11.2%. Then there are other sites, right, that state that today that percentage may have gone up with the regards to male nurses of all races 
um, to 13 percent. Um, however, you know, we know, you know, African-American men are still significantly underrepresented in nursing, so much so that, <laughs> Carter, I could not find a percentage. <laughs> would you happen to know? I'm, I'm going to, if I were to guess or estimate, I would say less than 1% of male nurses out of that 13% are African-American. What, what are your thoughts about that? When I did my master's research, it was around African-American men and nursing and their or men's pursuit of nursing. And there is no data. There is no statistic. Um, I kind of whittled it down. I extrapolated. Right. So it's a minority of a minority of a minority and what that number is. Um, I do know that on LinkedIn, the last couple of months, there was actually uh, the beginning of starting to quantify that by uh, black male nurses tagging other nurses and trying to grow people there. But I do know that that number is not captured right now nationally. Um, there are times I've been able to see it in very small pockets, like at a certain health system or a yeah. certain state. But to extrapolate that across the country to those greater numbers, it's not there. Which means, yeah. which means if we're not reportable and we're not seen, how do we be advocated for? How Absolutely. do we up? How do we let other folks see the possibilities as well? Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. You know it. It's difficult to quantify, apparently. <laughs> and you know, know what? I, and, mm -hmm. Whenever we talk about men in nursing, I just want to be very uh, deliberate in saying I'm a huge proponent of getting more men in nursing. However, I do not think that men by any means should run nursing or get us over that 50 percent by any means. I think I, there's a lot of respect that I have for the women who have taught me how to be an amazing registered nurse who laid the foundation in this profession, who advocated for them when there was nobody else to do so. Absolutely. So talk about men in nursing. I think that I want to make sure that I'm deliberate in saying the opportunity to become registered nurses and lifting up the profession as a whole, not necessarily that we need to, you know, swing the pendulum the other way um, to get to like 51%. That's not my goal at all. My goal is to make sure that men know how amazing this profession is, how much impact they can have for themselves, their community, their families, and ultimately the men that are coming into the hospital, right? We know that patients get better care by folks from their, either their, their neighborhoods, their backgrounds that understand them as a whole person. So for the 50% of the population that's coming into the hospital, if they're only being treated by, uh, by women, are men getting the best health outcomes um, currently? You know what? Thank you for saying that, because that kind of even segues into some other things that I kind of wanted to discuss with regards to our interview today. You know, I wanted to highlight an article that you wrote. Um, it is called Barbershop Talk, African-American Men's Perceptions of Nursing as a Career. And it was published in the Journal of National Black Nurses Association in 2019. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, your research regarding that and kind of give us a nice summary. I think you might have hinted on some things earlier, yeah. but give us a little bit more, please. Yeah. So kind of big picture. Um, why is there not more black men in nursing? Trying to understand that from a, a research standpoint. So going into the barbershops, which, you know, are historically hubs of cultural influence um, and trying to understand and have kind of conversation with folks about what their views were with the profession. Yeah. Um, what their aspirations could potentially be in the profession. So we had a questionnaire that we went around to three local barbershops here in Sacramento. Um, 
And the takeaway from that was that nursing actually is a viable option for black men. It's just understanding how to get through that, uh, through the, 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 the prerequisites and the outcome is, is something that still needs to be defined. And another takeaway from that piece was that when talking about nursing as a profession and, you know, not selling the, the career, but really talking about the attributes and getting people excited and interested. Mm-hmm. For young men, sometimes you have to do it a little differently, right? We know stereotypically men are providers in their, in their families, right? So talking about the financial benefits of nursing and supporting their family might be a, an avenue that you leverage when talking with young men about nursing as a whole, right? Especially here in Northern California. Absolutely where our pay is absolutely amazing and we're, yes, I'm fra- grateful for well. that. <laughs> uh, but, but having those candid conversations with men in the community is very important. I couldn't agree more. You know, I, nursing from it with regards to articles and things I've read, it's stigmatized, you mm-hmm. know, um, particularly being a, a woman profession, you know, um, but obviously there's also been other articles that, you know, um, highlight, you know, the importance of, same sex, you know, uh, providers, you know, and what better benefit it can help for your health care overall. So let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about that. You know, um, I've read many studies have been completed highlighting how race and ethnicity can impact healthcare disparities. You know, we you know, obviously, which regards, um, which that these healthcare disparities, what I'm trying to say, obviously can make healthcare itself um, unequal which is a large part of what our podcast is about. Uh, A study conducted in 2018 at Stanford actually suggests that more racial diversity amongst physicians would lead to a better healthcare outcome amongst African-American males. So with regards to health equity, what are your thoughts about this? Do you believe, and it sounds like you do, of course, kind of what we're leading to, do you believe it is important for it to have a provider or a nurse in our case who looks more like you? I love a leading question, um, but definitely the research supports that. Um, and kind of a, a question that I ask folks is, if you were to go into a healthcare system or you were a, a space where you were the only, right? Whether it yeah. be the grocery store, a meeting, an interview, and you're the only one of whoever it is, whether it be your, your socioeconomic background, your sexual identity, your racial background, the odds are that you will not feel as comfortable to be your true authentic self. I hope that you can, but there might be a little bit of a reservation in that versus going into a space where you are absolutely comfortable, mm-hmm. like a barbershop and the authentic conversation questions, the inquiry that can happen in curiosity is a lot more deep and authentic. We know that when we're providing healthcare to get to the root cause of a lot of disease processes, we need that transparency and authenticity with our patients and that collection, right? Or we're going to have multiple trips back and forth to the clinic until we really understand what we're looking for. A good example of that and what we're doing here in Northern California is our Cut to the Chase program that we partnered with the Greater Sacramento Urban League awesome. and providing mental health resources via the barbershop, right? So we're trying to uh, destigmatize mental health resources specifically for the black men, but then bringing it to a venue where that authenticity and, and, uh, you know, easy, ease of flow can happen because I work in a hospital and sometimes I still get nervous here, right? It's Mm -hmm. very sterile as it should be. Um, but in that sterility, sometimes we lose the ability to connect with folks. So, um, so to answer your question in a long, 
long-winded response, yes. I do think that we need more people who understand, and not just for the black community, but for any community, right? If speaking the same language in a question, in a, in a, in a HMP is huge, right? Um, understanding the, the circumstances someone's neighborhood is when discharging a patient home. Are they going to be able to get the medications? Do they have a ride to transport, right? Yeah. Do they have um, the wheelchair needed to get up the stairs? All these factors of people. And I think as we move into 2024 and the next 25, 50 years, our healthcare has to be more um, individualized and specific to the folks that we're taking care of. 100%. 100%. Thank you for sharing. Even the new uh, fact that you guys are working on, what, what did you say that um, the outreach program is? So it's Cut to the Chase. Cut to uh, the Chase. Sacramento Urban League. Uh, they partnered with us. We've received grant funding through one of our larger health organizations uh, here in the Northern Sacramento area, or Northern California area. We just finished our first uh, grant for the first year, rolling into the second year. And actually tonight, excuse me, tonight at six o'clock, we actually have the, the launch of the 2024 where we're bringing the women's salon into it, right? Awesome. And It'll be uh, the crown edition of the Cut to the Chase. So we'll have uh, not just the men's group, but also the women's group going in those trusted places of, um, of convening to have mental health discussions. So it's been great. We actually have mental health black men who are mental health providers leading the sessions and then free um, free therapy available for men that are, are attending as well, regardless awesome. of interest pretty special now i didn't get it i, I didn't get an invite to this you got to drive out the sack <laughs> you know i like what you said you know you mentioned the word trust and i think that's a large portion of you know um same race uh same race provider um is that trust factor and that's so some that's what a lot of or many of these articles you know discussed also with regards to transparency with your provider is the ability to trust them if they're the same race right um and outreach, you know, we know a large portion of outreach is to help engage those who don't have access, um, be able to reach out to them, the people who are hard to reach or yet able to reach, yet to be reached, I would say. I read something you stated in one of the articles, the many articles that I uh, read regarding you pertaining, pertaining to outreach. You mentioned or said, until nurses advocate for the community, things will not be able to change. Would you like to say a little bit more about that? I would. So being in healthcare now, I'm coming up on eight, nine years. The healthcare system as a whole has a lot of opportunity, right? And that, that's not specific to one, to nursing, to physicians, to a system. It's just healthcare in America. And we know that with the insurance premiums and whatnot, the high utilizers are absorbing a lot of the resource, which resource is finite. So we are very reactive in healthcare. I'd say, I used to say all the time in the ICU, like by the time you come and see me, it's really late in the game. Mm -hmm. Whether you've had a car crash, whether you've had that slip, trip and fall, whatever it may be, the late diagnosis of cancer. And I remember vividly in my master's program at Betty Irene um, that they talked about the financial benefit of preventive healthcare, of right. community healthcare on the front end, which is hard to quantify. I understand that. How do you quantify a health education class? How do you quantify a booth at a middle school talking about blood pressure? It's tough to, but the benefits, that's more um, upstream, right? Versus what we do is we give out a lot of Band-Aids and a lot of different uh, forms, right, in the healthcare right. system. So 
I'm very, I'm a huge proponent that going out in the community, having discussions, getting our hands on people before they're super sick and when they're healthy is when things really stick. Because if you're in a crisis of any disease process, the opportunity for you to absorb that is cut down significantly because of, because of the worry, because your job is calling you, you got to go to work tomorrow, you still have bills, right? These are real things that our patients are going through. And to assume that um, that getting out in front of anything, especially our health, is not beneficial, I think is a, an adjustment that we have to make to our healthcare system. Just like staying in shape, right? We go to the gym, we run, we eat well to prevent health um, health issues down the long run. So as a healthcare system, how do we stay in shape? What's the cardio that we're doing as systems to really push it forward? Absolutely. So I know what you all are doing in Sacramento. What would you recommend, you know, or any suggestions you would have for other healthcare organizations looking to increase uh, outreach and community? I would recommend that all the healthcare systems lean on their community health needs assessment, right? So there's a lot of obligation to kind of get a pulse of the communities that you're in. Find those needs, whether it be is there a high prevalence of, uh, you know, prostate cancer is a high prevalence of food insecurity is a high whatever it may be. And then get out into the community and touch those people before they come into the hospital. Um, it's easier said than done. I know Absolutely. because our health system and our hospitals are here in this these four walls operating here. So we can't in essence, fix everything. And I, and I appreciate that because our resources are finite too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But with that being said, I, there's just, there's tremendous work that takes place, the connections, the aha moments that happen in schools, in places of faith, in barbershops, before people are sick, that people can lean on to remain more healthier and come in to see us less sick. We all know that, especially after COVID, our patients are more sick when they come in to see us in the hospital. Therefore, they take more resources to get whole. So by getting back in front of it again and flexing those muscles of education, flexing those muscles of um, patient-centered advocacy, yeah. it really what we should do. So, and, and that's, we're all capable of doing that. You know, we've all grown those programs. There's always a department and every healthcare system that's community focused, but are they leveraged? Are they resourced the same as other departments? I love it. Carter for president, Carter Todd, who is the president of the Capital <laughs> City Black <laughs> Nurses Association. So your path into founding, you know, um, the CCBNA, you know, did it start or did it uh, originate from the passion that you're describing right now? And are you all um, as a, as a branch, are you all working into the community, working, yeah. is this all a part of it, working all together? So my path into the National Black Nurses Association was out of a movie. And when these things happen in our lives, right, whenever a door opens or there's an omen or a blessing, however you believe in your faith, you have to listen. I was sitting at home and the, the former uh, president of National Black Nurses, Dr. Eric J. Williams, called me, Cole called me out of the blue and said, hey, I seen you joined National Black Nurses and you're in Sacramento. You should start a chapter there. Mm -hmm. We don't have a chapter. He was amazing at spreading the mission and vision of MBNA. And he was very engaging as a, as a leader, as a, as a thinker in nursing. Um, and that's all it took for me to then lean on my peers next to me. 
I always want to make sure I lift up uh, Cherie Kreiner, who was one of our founding members and was one of those first people that I could see as a young nurse, as someone that I wanted to aspire to. She was all over the billboards. She was already a nurse manager. She was crushing it. Mm -hmm. And in Sacramento, there wasn't a lot of models of black nurses for me that I could see. And she was the first person that I saw. And I bumped into her in the hallway at Betty Irene Moore. And I pulled up on her and said, hey, Sheree, I want to work with you. I see you. We should start this chapter. And it started like that with 12 members. So I think my passion stem more for seeing the need than anything. Being in the hospital and seeing how the black community was not necessarily being treated, but just the health outcomes that I was seeing, the reoccurrence with the uh, asthma uh, exacerbation, right? The the violent incidences that I was seeing and wanting to do something to fix it. I think yeah. as a nurse, I, I put on that RN badge. I don't get to take it off, right? Because I exactly. still go out in the grocery store and I see things and I hear things and being in the barbershop when people are talking about diabetes and they're doing it wrong, you know, it's so hard not to help and to educate and to just continue trying to be a resource for folks. So Capital City Black Nurses started as that. Um, that was roughly five years ago. And we've we've been very fortunate. Um, so we do get out in the community a lot of different ways. Um, before COVID, we were very strong in speaking engagements, booths. Um, and since COVID, it's been more so in structured events. So I want to give a shout out to one of our uh, board members, Aaron King, who's currently in his PhD at Betty Irene Moore. And he has done great to formulate a couple really big um, conferences, uh, the Breaking Down Barriers Conference, and then collaborating with UC Davis and the Shines program. So helping to get the nursing profession and resources in very specific areas, right? So you have young people in school, you have those high schoolers transitioning into college or just transitioning into college. And then you have the everybody else. So the adult mm -hmm. people like me, when I was, I didn't start nursing school until I was 25, right? There's now a program for someone like me or a second career person or, you know, a single mom who's, you know, trudging away, right? There's resources and a, a path that people can follow. So that's been a really big focus for us is building those pathway programs now to really, um, bring other folks and other people along. So Thanks. capital city. So it's, it's something that I'm very passionate about. It's really opened my eyes is what's possible. It's been the single most influential and beneficial part of my journey as a registered nurse. Um, I've seen what it's done, not just for the community, but for the other black nurses who have really leaned into the organization. MBNA as a whole has been doing it for over 50 years. Yes. Right. And it brings folks like us together. Right. Like Absolutely. we're a couple <laughs> hours away over here in Northern California and we may have never crossed paths. But now because we have this amazing association, we're able to convene. And now we get to bring the national conference here in uh, in July. Yep. In San Francisco. Yep. Thank you so much for sharing that, Carter. Awesome. Awesome. You know your passion exudes beyond just in in the hospital and i love it you know i love it that's what nursing is to me you know so martin luther king weekend um is coming up i cannot let the moment pass without highlighting a few things dr king stated in his i have a dream speech which i believe are still relevant to today as it relates to health equity a couple of my favorite things that i want to quote from that speech is 
He said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, which is we hold true these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Then uh, a second, you know, favorite quote that I will quote from this speech is we cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we, we must make that pledge that we shall march ahead. We cannot turn back. So, Carter, what are your thoughts regarding the relevance of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, particularly those two um, parts of the speech that I quoted in today's society? What are your thoughts about that? Well, just listening to the speech, I just getting all those flashes of the historic pictures of Dr. Martin Luther King and marching and, you know, being arrested and the amazing work that he was able to do in his one life, right? That's one human being, but he will forever be remembered. And it's pretty, um, pretty special that we still follow those credos that he laid out for us. When you were talking about marching forward and the visual that I have is Dr. King was marching for his community with everybody because change and impact, it can't happen in silos in just us for us or just them for them. It really takes everybody. And I think Absolutely. when you, when you seen the pictures of Dr. King, he had everybody there with him, right? From all different walks of life for his mission and his goal. And I think that's the way forward for us is we can all help each other be more successful individually just because i'm not from your community just because i do not completely understand your plight or your oppression does not mean that i am not able to be a resource and ally and help you out to make everything created equal as he stated so that's my takeaway that i think is now more relevant than ever um, that we all should be helping each other get up to the to the to that even playing field however we can so um that's what my takeaway is Absolutely. I couldn't bullseye. We all play a part in being created equal. And a large portion of that includes equal health care. You know, so I want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, What is your dream for the future of nursing? My dream for the future of nursing is that nursing doesn't just take place in hospitals. It currently doesn't. It takes place all over the place, but really leveraging that high level skill of an ICU, of a nurse practitioner, and we get nursing to happen in the community and everywhere. It might be a pie in the sky idea, but why would there not be a nurse at a concert, at an event where we have the opportunity to continually check in and have the opportunity to make those quick fixes before, like I said earlier, before things are already off the rails. I think that routine maintenance is where nurses can really find value moving into the future. So I know there's like concierge nurses or, you know, at home uh, nurse practitioners and that same kind of an idea to where it's a lot more fine tuning and preventative than the big diagnosis and hospital admission they stay intubation later. No nursing beyond the walls of the hospital, ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. So another a personal question now, Mr. Carter. Uh-oh. What is your dream for your future in nursing? Mm. In nursing specific? Yes. Because I have a lot of dreams. I love my family. <laughs> I have a lot of other endeavors. Nursing is one of the hats, right? 
my personal dream for nursing is that I can add value to the profession as a whole. And that when I'm done, when I'm one of those old greats that have, you know, that can't get up from the table, but I'm, I'm always at the party is that the profession that we are in in nursing looks significantly different and improved than the nursing that we're in now. And that these conversations that we have, that they've actually gone somewhere. I don't have all the answers. There's no one Carter's way forward isn't the answer, but I just want to make sure that when I'm in my eighties and nineties and I turn around and there's these new young crop of nurses coming through and yeah. uh, pushing the, pushing the agenda forward that, that it has changed and we have made that impact and we can at least feel good that, that we left that, that legacy. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. Now we, we kind of moved into the pearls of wisdom segment of our show where mm. we know pearls in the line symbolize inner wisdom. So would you mind sharing with us one to three, you know, however many you would like pearls of wisdom, what advice would you give to others to replicate or apply what you've already done to arrive in the place that you have arrived in your career? Uh, number one pearl of wisdom is do not take it personal. Mm. I think our ego gets in the way of a lot of things. We didn't get the grade because a teacher didn't like me or I didn't get into the program because I'm not good enough. It's not personal. The world it's kind of harsh to say, maybe it's my ICU background, but the world doesn't care about us individually that much. So once I understood that and got out of my own way, it made things a lot more manageable, yes. right? And I can take more control moving forward. So number one was that. Number two, a pearl of wisdom. I didn't write anything down, so I'm coming off the cuff. I'm off the cuff. Um. I said one to three. It's it's. Early. I'll give you one more. Okay. I would say that um, that with time you can do anything, mm. and I truly believe that. I just did that Ironman race um, mm -hmm. last year. Mm -hmm. So for anyone who doesn't know what an Ironman race is, I swam two and a half miles. I got out of the water. I biked for 112 miles, which was like six and a half hours. And then after all that, I went and ran a marathon, and. Yes, I played college sports, but I am not a runner and not athletic in that sport. So, but I was able to train and push myself to do that. And after that, you know, it's, we can do anything that we set our mind to with enough time, with enough hard work, with enough focus. So give yourself that grace. I think, especially now in the social media age, it's all very, we need it right yeah. now. I want, I want to be the, whatever it is. I want the title. I want to be in the nursing school. And I was there, trust me, when I was 23, working at the restaurant and wanting to get out of there, I could not, I was itching with the rest of them. But now sitting back and having kids and seeing how time flies with enough time, you can succeed and do anything you want. So I think that's needed too. And that, that journey to become a registered nurse, that journey to become an MP is you'll get there, making sure you're doing things every day in that time to make that you can get to that next, uh, that next spot. Awesome. Awesome. Well, listeners, this concludes the second episode, or actually our first guest, first episode with our first guest, Carter Todd um, of Beyond the Bedside, Nested Stories of Nursing Professionals. Thank you so much, Carter, for joining us today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Thank you again, Carter, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Dr. Diaz Nelson, and today we have Dr. Hampton here um, for the research segment. Um, why don't we just dive right in? What's the study for today, Dr. Hampton? So this study was scouted and analyzed by our teammate, Dr. Kyungmi Kim, because it aligned really well with Dr. Brown and Mr. Todd's discussion about the underrepresentation of African-Americans and men in nursing. So this paper titled Current Stereotypes Associated with Nursing and Nursing Professionals is an integrative review by Christina Teresa Morales and colleagues, and it was published in 2022. We'll be sure to link the study in the episode notes. What they did was to explore the stereotypes linked to nursing because when we have negative perceptions like these, they can influence how prospective students might view the profession and limit its growth or our ability to recruit new professionals into our field. They searched three databases for qualitative, quantitative, or mixed method studies about various stereotypes surrounding nursing professionals that were published between 2016 and 2021, and they ended up finding 27 studies and including those in the review with a total of more than 4,700 participants across all the studies. So this was really a major undertaking. Wow, I'm excited to hear what the, what the main findings were, if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. The investigators identified two main categories of stereotypes. First, participants frequently reported that they perceived nursing as a female profession. So male nurses also experienced some, some sort of um, discrimination almost. They felt like their professional abilities and even their masculinity were questioned. And they also experienced pushback if they pursued interests in fields like gynecology, maternity, and pediatrics. The second main stereotype they reported was that while nursing is perceived as valued, it's often not seen as being prestigious. Nurses are often seen as subordinate to or constantly supervised by other health professionals and that nursing doesn't require a high level of skill or education. So you can imagine that that sort of perception might not make the field very appealing to students who are looking for an attractive career option when they're just coming out of high school or in their first couple of years of college. Great. Thank you for summarizing that. Those are important um, points to consider about the nursing profession. So what do you think might be some ways that these findings of the review can be um, used in an actual practice and for the profession of nursing? Great. So to begin with, understanding how nursing is perceived is a great first step toward improving our image to the public and those students we'd like to recruit. But who I think would be most impacted by the finding of this study are nurses who are in academia, potentially college counselors, any sort of professional who's planning things like high school career days. There are several things that these people might be able to do with this information. So in order to market the profession to both men and women, nursing faculty and these other professionals who prepare program materials such as brochures and they organize events with students and working professionals should be sure to include men. I think the saying goes, if you see it, you can be it. And so it's important for male students to be able to look at others in the profession in order to see it as a viable career path. Then, we can think about outreach and community engagement as another strategy. 
Uh, so our guest this week, Carter Todd, he used this community engagement strategy in his own qualitative study where he recruited African-American men from barbershops. So when you go into the environments where people live and work, you can raise visibility and the image of nursing. Next, nursing organizations can also engage local media to showcase the diverse faces of nursing, or they can create fun and an interactive learning experiences specifically designed for students from groups that are underrepresented in the nursing field. A few other ideas that could be used are mentorship programs and career fairs, but what could be the most meaningful is funding. Scholarships and financial aid can help remove those barriers that might be stopping individuals from pursuing a career when they might otherwise be interested. And then finally, the authors concluded that we as a profession need to lobby for policies that support diversity and inclusion in the nursing profession, meaning we've got significant work to do in education and in the workplace to make sure our workforce can meet the needs of our very diverse population. Great, thank you. You bring up really good points. And I think um, starting in the community is always important. And you know, even if we wanna diversify the, the types of, of nurses and the different um, you know, genders, races, ethnicities, it's it's a good place to start. Um, you, you bring up a lot of other really important points. So I look forward to the, the future of nursing and hopefully we'll, we'll see this in practice. Thank you so much. So nice talking to you today. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today and being a part of our Beyond the Bedside, Nested Stories of Nursing Professionals podcast community. Working toward health equity in the U.S. is a heavy lift, but it's possible to make strides if we work together. Be sure to email or message us if you have any ideas for show topics, guests, or with your questions. And if you found today's discussion insightful, please like or subscribe and share with a friend. You can find us on YouTube, Instagram, and most podcast streaming platforms. The links for these platforms will be located in our show notes. Thank you again.